Hello and welcome to Bite Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I'm Nick, your host. So, in part due to listener reactions, I'm going to follow up my last episode, which was five historical movies for history buffs, uh, with another one of a similar theme. My last episode, I talked about five movies that I have seen, I like, I know a lot about, uh, and these are movies that are very historically accurate, and if you're a history buff, are very satisfying to watch, because you can really appreciate all of the little details. I talked about uh, Master and Commander, Zulu, Gettysburg, Dunkirk, and 1917. There were a few movies that came so close to making their way into that episode, um, but just for reasons of time, I couldn't really talk about them. And um, I don't know, I felt like, I was like, hmm, there's just a few more that I'd like to talk about. So today we're gonna be discussing The Last of the Mohicans, Das Boat, and uh, Letters from Iwo Jima. These are three movies, again, that I've seen, I like, They're very historically accurate, very satisfying to watch. Um, They won a pile of awards. And they really span um, kind of a variety of different time periods uh, and, and themes and stuff like that. So without further ado, let's get started. Let's begin with Last of the Mohicans, which uh, came out in 1992. It's an action-adventure drama movie directed by Michael Mann, uh, who's pretty accomplished in Hollywood. Like, he also directed a few movies you might remember, like uh, Ali, Collateral, Heat, stuff like that. This movie takes us way back to a period in early American history, in fact, before the Revolution. In that time, that conflict, uh, because it takes place during a war, was called the French and Indian War, which is usually the kind of American term, the American designation for the New World uh, theater of the Seven Years' War. This was a time when France and Britain uh, were at war. I mean, <laughs> were they ever not at war? Uh, and it took place between 1754 and 1763. Uh, when there was a treaty signed called the Treaty of Paris, and one of the lasting effects for the history of the United States, and in fact Canada, was France kind of lost all of their claims to North America, and they lost the colony of New France. Because during the time of this war, you had the the 13 colonies, uh, you know, inhabited by the English along the eastern seaboard, of the United States, but north of them was New France, and they were often fighting. You know, there had even been previous colonial wars, uh, like Queen Anne's War, uh, King Philip's War, stuff like that. But uh, Last of the Mohicans, based on a novel by James Fenimore Cooper, takes place in kind of the last great colonial conflict in North America between the French and the English. Now, what it is, it's the story of three kind of rangers, trappers, Uh, that are caught up in this conflict. You have Jingachkuk, and he's an old Mohican, and Uncas, who's who's also a Mohican. Uh, Jingachkuk is played by Russell Means, uh, who is a famous 
kind of Native American activist, and he pops up in a lot of uh, other movies as well. They are moving along the frontier with the third member of their party, who's a white guy um, named Hawkeye, uh, or Long Carabine, as he's known to the French. And he was um, adopted. He's kind of the adopted son of Chingachgook. And um, they kind of get involved with a pair of uh, British women. Well, actually, Scottish. They're the two daughters of this guy called Colonel Monroe. And you start seeing fighting around places like Fort William Henry. And um, there's a lot of... One of the things I like about Last of the Mohicans is uh, the historical accuracy, like the battle scenes when you see redcoats fighting natives. Uh, you see a lot of them still sticking to old world tactics of, um, you know, volley fire and get in formation. And they're fighting natives who at the time, their style of fighting was called Indian fighting. And I think I've mentioned this in a previous episode. The, the word, the term Indian fighting um, in early American history, uh, you know, going into the revolution, usually, according to historians and stuff, means fighting like the Indians. Whereas by the time you get to the late 19th century with the wars against the Sioux and the Apache uh, and stuff like that, Indian fighting came to maybe change its its meaning, its connotation a little bit into fighting against the Indians. But in any case, this is a style of fighting that is typified by like hiding behind trees, moving and reloading, uh, skirmish formations. And you definitely see this uh, in a scene in the movie where a British column is uh, kind of ambushed on both sides. They're going through a grassy meadow, but there's trees on both sides. So very well shot. Uh, you see them fighting with, you know, muskets, tomahawks, uh, you know, knives, pistols, stuff like that. Um, Last of the Mohicans is very visually beautiful. There's lots of these long lingering shots of mountainous terrain and, and these vast, vast forests. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is because it, it kind of, it hammers the point home to the viewer of the immense untamed wilderness of this new world frontier that these Europeans are, are coming into and just like how just immense and wild this territory is. The, in case you're wondering kind of where it takes place, it's mostly upstate New York, um, which to this day is still very, you know, pretty country, but at the time was really the, uh, the frontier. Daniel Day-Lewis, uh, who's, well, I mean, he's just incredible in everything. He's the guy who plays Hawkeye in the movie and uh, very, very good, very talented actor. Madeline Stowe's in it as well. Um, you get to see perspectives from the British. Uh, in fact, <laughs> there's one scene where the British officers are talking amongst themselves and they're talking about how to deal with the natives and the colonists and the militia. And he said, you know, I thought our plan was to negotiate with them. And this other guy who's this diehard British, you know, king and country officer, he says, I thought our plan was to make the world England. And so you kind of see this definite divergence in opinions. A lot of the British officers who've been in the New World, maybe a little bit longer than this guy, are like, yeah, okay, you know, that doesn't really work. Uh, you know, we're more realistic. You get to see a French perspective. There's definitely a native perspective. There's a, a captivating character in the movie called Magua, uh, who got caught up in this conflict. His village was butchered and he was assimilated into another tribe. But 
the whole time he was still loyal to his old tribe. And I like that they put that in there because um, one of the things about colonial warfare, the native peoples didn't often like raid and just eradicate other populations. They would replenish their own population by capturing women and children of neighboring tribes and then raising them as their own, which is kind of like a, a little bit of a different style of warfare than the Europeans who were coming into this conflict. The score is incredible. Uh, there, to this day, you know, there's still lots of people on YouTube who just listen to this score that because it's just so beautiful. And the climax of the movie where you see kind of the villain of the film uh, come into conflict with uh, Chingachkuk, who's the, the older Mohican guy played by, by Russell Means that I mentioned a little while ago. They have like a one-on-one -on -one combat and the way that it's shot is just so interesting because it's not this like... It's not this vicious, loud, kind of murderous fist fight like you see at the end of something like The Revenant, if you've ever seen that. No, it's like a very quiet, carefully measured combat. Like, it almost reminds me of a samurai duel. And uh, I really hope that, you know, any listeners that... I, I, I hope you know what I'm talking about, kind of the the one-on-one -on -one fight at the end of the film. It, it reminds me of two dueling samurai, uh, if that makes any sense. So definitely... You know, it, uh, it won an Oscar. It, uh, it was nominated for a bunch more. But um, if you're looking for kind of uh, just an incredible movie from the colonial era of the United States, the, the kind of dark time of vast forests and drums and tomahawks, uh, you could do a lot worse than Last of the Mohicans. It's very, very good. I very much recommend it. Okay, now let's talk about Das Boot from 1981, directed by Wolfgang Petersen. Wolfgang Petersen kind of cut his teeth uh, on this movie and went on to direct a lot of other movies, uh, for some reason often having to do with the, the sea, like the ocean. But um, Das Boot is really the gold standard of submarine movies. Uh, it got an 8.3 out of 10 on uh, the Internet Movie Database, IMDb. And this movie really, really captures kind of the, the tension, just the tension and, and the suspense and the pressure of being on one of these tiny little tin can, little submersible tubes that we call U-boats. Like U-boats were a lot smaller a lot more cramped than modern submarines. And uh, yes, they had electric batteries and uh, diesel motors and stuff like that, but um, this movie really captures just how cramped these vessels were. It uh, comes to us from way back in 1981. It's a uh, war, action, adventure, drama, kind of thriller movie. Uh, the main character uh, is uh, played by Jürgen Proschnow, and his, his character's name is Captain Lieutenant Henrich Lehmann Willenbrock, which is a very German name, and he's also called Der, Der Alte uh, in the movie, which just means like the old one, the old man, or whatever. Um, there's lots of captivating scenes where you'll see them kind of avoiding depth charges from destroyers, surfacing, uh, submerging, 
really captures a lot of the everyday operations of what it was like to be on a U-boat. There's also a little bit of political tension, a little bit of political conflict because the U-boat captain himself is not really a Nazi. Like he has his loyalties to the German people and the German Navy. And you see a, lot, a little bit of his, uh, his attitudes towards like the Fuhrer and the uh, ruling regime in Germany. Um, <clears throat> just to hammer this point home, I mean, the description of the film on IMDb is, it's very simple. It's just one sentence. It's the uh, quote, the claustrophobic world of a World War II uh, German U-boat, boredom, filth, and sheer terror, uh, end quote. And that's, that's very, very true. I mean, a lot of military movies uh when you read military first-hand accounts the a lot of these writers will often say yeah you know like serving in uh the armed forces in a period of conflict is you know 99 boredom and one percent sheer terror and this is definitely seen in this movie and <laughs> i love how they mentioned filth because that's another thing I'm surprised. I sometimes I wonder if other people have seen this too. But I remember when I saw Das Boat, one of the things that just kept, uh, you know, popping out to me was like, I'm like, ah, like these guys are all just like so sweaty and dirty, and they're wearing the same clothes for days at a time. Occasionally, they they get doused in seawater, and and that's very much you can see that in the movie. Uh, I remember thinking to myself like, oh god, like I wonder what it smells like in that submarine. But, uh, and they make a joke about it too, you know, like, uh, they, I, th I think if I remember correctly, there's a scene where they have, they're testing out the gas masks and stuff because in case, you know, there's smoke or whatever, you know, if there's a fire on a submarine like this, the smoke accumulates very, very quickly. Like you have to surface and pop the hatches, uh, or you might suffocate. So that's why they have the gas masks. But one of the guys even said like, yeah, we use this in case of smoke or when friends and thoughts, because that's another thing too, is just the air quality. Ugh. But definitely, um, World War II movies generally uh, take place, you know, on land uh, with with army operations or special operations with commandos, stuff like that. There are a handful of movies where you get to see a lot of World War II aviation, uh, things like uh, Tora, 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 or even uh, if I could just recommend the recent film on, uh, I think it's Amazon Prime, it's called Midway. That was also very good. But, uh, and there are some naval movies, but there aren't that many like really good submarine movies. Uh, if you've ever seen U-571 with uh, Harvey Keitel, uh, Matthew McConaughey and stuff like that, like that's decent, it's passable, but it's nowhere as good as Das Boat. Like it's it's just so good. And just uh, in case you're wondering like, why is it called Das Boat? Uh, boat is just German for boat, <laughs> but it's spelled boot. Uh, and it's short for Unterseeboot. So Unter, which is under, Zay, which is like sea, and boat. So uh, in the German language, like their word for submarine, like our word submarine, sub just means under and marine, you know, obviously, uh, uh, you know, means like uh, the ocean or the sea. Their word is literally just under, under sea boat. Um, definitely, if you want to see kind of how they would load and fire torpedoes, uh, a lot of the kind of monotony of just sitting at their little, there's a lot of uh, scenes where they're sitting at their little mess table or whatever, and they're just talking about it. And the ship is kind of rocking a little bit and you can see their food and um, 
just very, very... Wolfgang Peterson did a really good job of kind of illustrating a lot of the really little, little details of living on one of these submarines during a time of war and uh, really what it was like. Uh, and even the way that the camera moves, the, the way that the camera moves around the crew and follows them as they're running and ducking and jumping through these like little portholes that connect the segments of the submarines. They're separated by like this little wall with a, a little door that opens and you can slam it shut and screw it tight in event of an emergency. But when the crew has to get from one section of the submarine to another, you see them and it's this military precision. They just run, run, run. And they they almost like jump through these little porthole doors. And, uh, you know, that must have taken a lot of training, even just for the actors to accomplish. So definitely, if you're looking for a tense, suspenseful, thrilling World War II film that is... Um, very well crafted, very historically accurate. Check out Das Boat from 1981. And now let's turn to our final movie for this episode. And that is Letters from Iwo Jima from 2006, directed by Clint Eastwood. I have not seen this movie for many, many years, and it still sticks with me. Um, so that should tell you something. It's a drama kind of action adventure, and it has graphic de depictions of combat, but also it has so much heart and soul, uh, and you really feel connected to a lot of these characters. It is notable in the history of war movies, uh, you know, World War II movies in particular, in that it's told from the Japanese perspective, and it was released in the United States. And I have read one or two film critics who have said in their reviews that if they had not seen the cast lists and the, the, all the people that worked on the movie, they would have thought that this was a Japanese movie. It is true that the writers uh, were Japanese, but uh, like I said a few moments ago, Clint Eastwood was the director. It tells the story of, in the closing days of World War II, the Americans, through a campaign of island hopping through the Pacific Ocean, were drawing ever closer to the home islands of Japan. And the Japanese, as this was happening, grew more and more resistant and more and more determined to defend their territory. You know, it's one thing to defend occupied territory in, uh, you know, French Indochina or China or the Philippines or something. It's another completely to defend, you know, the sacred Japanese home islands. And a lot of these Japanese officers really did hold that the home islands of Japan were sacred. Uh, the Japanese themselves were a chosen people and they would serve the emperor to death and they would prefer death before dishonor because honor was really the whole reason for their existence. Um, so definitely when you hear stories of American vets and they just talk about how determined these Japanese defenders were to fight on these little islands that were just often, you know, windswept collections of rocks and caves and beaches. Um, so Definitely, I recommend this movie. The score is very good. The main theme with the gentle piano is very, very touching. 
Um, the main character is Ken uh, Watanabe, who is kind of, since this movie, he's pretty much Hollywood's first choice for, for like an introspective, kind of soulful, uh, dignified, older Japanese man. You may recognize him from, um, he was in Godzilla, um, he was in a few other movies. He played the character of Saito in Inception, so definitely a very gifted uh, actor. The main character, too, is um, very well played. I believe his name is Saigo, and he's played by Kazunari Ninomiya. Ninomiya, yes. And um, this movie was actually released uh, in conjunction with another film called Flags of Our Fathers, which tells the story of that small collection of Marines in the famous photograph where they're uh, pulling up the American flag on the peak of Mount Suribachi and kind of the the whole uh, public perception uh, situation back home in the United States where they really harnessed the power of this photo and those soldiers to raise money uh, for the war effort. So kind of, if you want, uh, you could even do a double feature one night where you watch uh, Letters from Iwo Jima, the Japanese perspective, and then Flags of Our Fathers, the American perspective, to really get uh, a full picture of what was going on during this terrible fight on Iwo Jima. Um, during the movie, it really kind of challenges uh, maybe a lot of the preconceived notions that we have about these Japanese soldiers. Um, oftentimes they're presented as universally fanatic. Uh, they're, they're just all fanatics. But the movie shows that no, they, they weren't all like that. Um, there were a few that just wanted to get home to their families. And, and definitely this movie illustrates that. There are some diehard officers uh, that it's like, oh, we're gonna fight to the death. And you kind of ask yourself while you're watching, it's like, well, okay, that's fine and good for you. But what about the 3000 guys under your command? Like you're just gonna throw them away too. Um, so that's kind of a complex issue. And there is a scene in the movie where there is one of these diehard Japanese guys and he gets it in his head that he's gonna clutch this explosive device. I think it's like a landmine or something and he's gonna crawl under a tank. And he asks, you know, who's gonna come with me? And some do and, and some don't. And towards the end of the movie, um, the remaining Japanese survivors that have, I guess, decided for themselves that they're not gonna die for this place are huddled starving in caves. And the movie is called Letters from Iwo Jima because there was a cache uh, of letters that was unearthed by these people who either thought they were gonna die or actually did die. And it gives you a first-hand window into the minds of the soldiers that were defending this windswept island. So definitely, definitely, um, if you want kind of a World War II movie that's a little different, uh, or if you're specifically looking for one, like I said, they're very rare, that's actually told from the Japanese perspective, check out Letters from Iwo Jima, directed by Clint Eastwood in 2006. All right, well, that's going to do it for us here today. Um, as I mentioned in the intro, after the previous episode, I just could not resist talking about another three great history movies for history buffs. 
definitely encourage you to check out that episode if you haven't heard it already. But today, we talked about Last of the Mohicans, Das Boat, and Letters from Iwo Jima. Just three phenomenal, splendid historical movies that I very, very much recommend. And uh, if you've got some free time coming up, hey, you know, maybe give them a shot. I think you'll be glad you did. But in any case, this has been Bite Sized History, the show where I try to make history fun, fast, and interesting. I was Nick, your host. Listener mail can be sent to bitesizedhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Once again, thank you so, so much for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>